Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Greetings, constant listeners. It's Gen 2, The Rage Adams. I know we originally planned to drop our 112263 miniseries coverage, but family called, and we need a little more time. But don't fret. If you recall from last week's episode, we're spending the next two months catching up on all the Stephen King adaptations and anniversaries we missed over the past year. So to stay on theme, we are unlocking a topical episode of the Stephen King Archives, our Patreon-exclusive imprint in which your losers search the vault of Stephen King material dusting off unpublished short stories, long-forgotten interviews, coffee-stained manuscripts, and alternate versions of your favorite tales. This particular entry was recorded in June 2022 and finds the losers dusting off their copy of Stephen King's World of Horror. Released in 1986, the 45-minute documentary covers the works of King and his influence on pop culture. Peppered between segments with King are a number of clips from essential horror titles, alongside interviews with John Carpenter, Clive Barker, Tom Savini, and more. Together, Randall, Mike, and I revisit the analog era of being a horror fan, digress on King's myriad quotes throughout the 45-minute special, and chew on the evolution of pop culture icons. And naturally, as we're wont to do, we detour into a number of unexpected tangents, the likes of which lead us to places both wonderful and strange. So listen ahead, and for more content like this, join us in The Barons, www.patreon.com slash The Barons. Otherwise, we'll be seeing you along the beam over long days and pleasant nights. 
My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you wanna make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. This is another episode of the Stephen King Archives. I was a little theatrical in that, and there's a reason. It's because uh, in this episode today, we're going to be talking about Stephen King's World of Horror. Uh, it's a you know it's a rare special I guess rare in a sense because uh, when I picked it up about a year ago I thought it was rare I posted on socials and everyone was like oh actually I've seen that around but anyway we're talking about it today it's gonna be exciting uh, and uh, yeah that's where we're at so who am I well I'm not Stephen King and I'm not at the world <laughs> of horror I happen to be Michael Abra Cadaver Rothman and uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little excited to talk about this just because uh, it's been sitting on my shelf for almost a year now and uh, it just seemed like a good time to talk about because look it's blockbuster month on our main feed there are countless blockbusters within this special that we're going to be probably glossing over here uh, and uh, look it's also a VHS tape which is what eventually blockbusters were on back in the <laughs> 80s and 90s so hey it's all fitting there uh, but look I'm a little chilly down here in the archives, and you know, like any library, I I, I did bring my sweater, um, much uh, much to the pleasure of, of Jen because she loves she she loves. You uh, always got to bring a sweater. You got to bring a sweater anywhere you go. You never know where it's going to be cold, but fortunately, the heat's going to be on. Uh, not just because we got some hot summer blockbusters to talk about, but because I'm surrounded by friends. So here from Chicago, please introduce yourself and tell us: Have you ever? <laughs> entered Stephen King's world of horror. Why, hello, Mike. It's nice to meet you. Oh. Uh, this is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and uh, very excited to be here to discuss this very strange special. I was, um, I'd never seen this before, and watching this special, which is essentially kind of like, like, I, I guess the way that I view it is is it's almost sort of an introduction to horror yeah. for people, which is such an interesting concept because I feel like now horror is kind of this lifestyle, right? It's like people, um, there's conventions devoted to it. There's, uh, you know, film festivals devoted to it. There's all these things that are devoted to horror. And I think that that wasn't the case for a long time. And we would get these sort of curio specials with Stephen King as a kind of de facto doorman who would sort of explain horror to people. I think, like, the idea that he had popularized these things to such a massive degree, he obviously wasn't the first popular horror writer by any means, but I think his level of fame was pop in a way that a lot of other horror writers weren't. Oh, absolutely. And I think for that reason, he kind of was this... Uh, doorman for a lot of people who'd never really engaged with horror before and I watch a special like this and it's kind of like hey people in the suburbs like let's introduce you to horror and honestly when I was a kid I would have eaten something like this up because I was a kid in the suburbs who got into horror and was um, had no mentors in the field and no other way towards it except for just reading it and watching it and engaging with it so I think having someone to basically be like 
here's what I think horror fiction should do, and here are the seminal titles. It's sort of like, I mean, you know, the way that I obviously see this, and I'm sure this has crossed your mind, Mike and Jen both, like, this is sort of the the cinematic dance macabre. Totally. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a good comp. That's a good comp. Uh, Well, yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the era of horror, too, about and kind of where fandom and all the all that hoopla that you just discussed is has gone to because I think we take it for granted today for sure. But uh, let's introduce our third and final guest, uh, our co-host actually, uh, coming in from Nashville. Uh, please introduce yourself, and I see that uh, you're also bringing a sweater. So. <laughs> Yes, you always have to have a sweater because you never know when you get cold. It's true. Always have a sweater and a book in your purse. Um, this is Jen, Jen's world of horror. Oh, um, and, <laughs> spooky, um, actually. I know. Woo-hoo. I'm getting chills myself. Um, well, it's scary in libraries, too, you know, that's hence the sweater. Um, I'd never heard of this before, but it was really, really fascinating to watch. Um, I agree that it felt like a like a spiritual um sibling to Dance Macabre, but it felt like like the cinematic equivalent, you know, in a way mm-hmm. that I feel like I don't want to say movies dumb things down, but it just felt like more blockbustery where I feel like Dance Macabre deals with a lot of really classic texts. And this one, I, I thought it was really fascinating to see movies that were modern at the time of this documentary. You know, I'm a sucker for horror documentaries, but most of the time when you watch them, it's like movies that are old enough for us to have like a a, a bubble of consideration, you know, like they have kind of permeated through culture and people have written and talked about them. And so it was just really interesting to hear them talk about this, this relatively new movie that just came out, Stand By Me, you know? I know, I know. <laughs> it's like, that's cool. Or like to see the the titles they were choosing, which feel really kind of dated now like maximum overdrive but we're like really fresh at the time you know Uh, oh absolutely i mean this came out this was released in 1986 and the one we watched so i sent out around a link that had um two specials actually one was the world of horror which we just discussed and then the other one was like this is horror um and kind of like uh basically a commingling of of multiple interviews with Stephen King and um, they have a lot of behind the scenes footage from a variety of horror and sci-fi films. Um, and so this was later released actually on VHS in the UK in 1992. Um, and a lot of these specials are actually later incorporated into the series called This Is Horror and uh, The Shadow Theater. But um, essentially, I want to read the synopsis that's on the VHS tape that I have, which is just strictly World of Horror. And this one is only 45 minutes. And so this is what it says. Stephen King's world of horror. (laughs) I'm warped. I am. You don't do this sort of thing if you're all right, hyphen Stephen King. That's his quote, if you couldn't tell. Uh, So here's the synopsis. Warped or not, Stephen King has become one of the most popular storytellers in the history of mankind. They're not wrong, actually. Uh, Now you'll see why in this private tour through his realm of the macabre, where King mixes his sinister wit with some chilling surprises and startling revelations. Then you'll feel a nasty grin grow on your face when... A nasty grin grow on your face. Like, just imagining, like, uh, the Grinch or something. Like, the Grinch! Um, <laughs> when uh, when horror celebrities John Carpenter, Clive Barker, and Frank Darabont join in for a tribute to horror movie previews. Included here is a collector's portfolio of the most memorable and most outrageous horror film promotions ever 
devised. Find out why horror is a necessary evil in your life. Bring Stephen King home to your screening room in this front row home video special. And that last line really goes into what you're discussing, Randall, on that it really does kind of feel like, um, I don't know, like almost like a door-to-door salesman for horror <laughs> for people in the mm-hmm. suburbs, like exactly what you're saying. And I ate this shit up as a kid because mm-hmm. I was a blockbuster kid. I was a latchkey kid. I it I still get anxiety if the television's not on when I'm alone Same. at home, you know? And so for me, I just loved these type of Rolodex of, you know, footage or media or what have you. And so watching this really took me back and it really took me back to a lot of the movies that I used to rent from the library that were like, you know, it's something that Mike Vanderbilt calls the Halloween. He's like infotainment. And, and that's kind of what I got from this is that, you know, maybe not the depth that we're used to these days. And especially in the Reddit culture where you just kind of learn everything. But what I like about this is that, you know, it offers a cursory look at I mean, really the greatest hits of the last 15 years up to 1986, 1988 or 1987. And also adds some sort of interesting points to stick with. And I think we're going to, you know, go over some of them. The one question I wanted to ask though is, you know, were you really hip to these type of specials growing up? Because I mean, we're all pretty much on the border for Generation X, I would imagine. And I want to say that I feel like maybe we might be one of the last generations to actually really remember and appreciate this type of media because even when i was in high school and they started releasing these i remember in high school there was a dvd that came out called the boogeyman or the boogeymen or something like that and i remember getting it and i'm being like oh it's just a fucking clip show what the hell is this and (laughs) and but then still kind of liking it but i you know at that point it felt like the glass gasp of these type of specials Growing up, Jen, for you, like, did, was this something that you that you watched a lot, or do you remember seeing a lot? You know, no, I don't. But I would have eaten this shit up at the time. Like, I, w- I say that I got into Stephen King through my dad because he had Stephen King books on the shelf. But like, they, my parents really wouldn't let me watch a lot of horror stuff, so I had to sneak it a lot. And um, this just never really came across my radar. I think I might have been able to sell this to them a little more, like, because it's, like, smart or it's like a documentary. You know, it feels like it's on NPR or something, you know? Yeah. Um, but, no, I I I didn't watch this kind of stuff, but now I love it, and I'm <laughs> mad that I missed out on a whole, like, childhood of these kind of things, you know? Because it you does. Know, yeah, it's – oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, because oh, I was going to say, oh, Mike – uh, what you're saying, this, this, this discussion is actually kind of exciting to me. Like this idea of, because I think it's tapping into something that I've never really talked about, which is, and it's not like it's a big thing, but my biggest analog when I watch something like this is, I know this sounds a little weird, but I'll connect the dot in a minute. I promise is professional wrestling. When mm-hmm. I was a kid, I was obsessed with professional wrestling and I had all the magazines i would get wwe or wwf magazine um and you know any other dirt rag i could get my hands on but you know i was buying stuff at uh at you know the whatever version of cbs was around back then i couldn't get a lot of things so wwf magazine was pretty much the extent of it and i would sort of drool over the ads in the back of the magazine where there would be vhs tapes for sale of old pay-per-views because back then you couldn't like 
go stream a pay-per-view, you know? Mm-hmm. These these were things that they aired once, and then you could rent them, maybe, if your video store carried them. And that's how I watched a lot of old wrestling, was I rented it. But I always wanted to own... There would be these things that weren't at the video store that were essentially what I realize now were compilation tapes. They were a collection of matches under a certain theme, whether that was, like, the best Bret Hart matches, the best... Uh, uh, you know, um, Ric Flair matches, stuff like that. And I wanted these tapes so badly. But back then, I was a child. My parents would never get me stuff like that. And they were expensive. They were like nineteen ninety nine a tape. And that was a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Like, and my parents would never, ever, ever do that. And there was also sort of the added... You know, back then it was like you had you needed postage, you needed uh-huh. to write them a you letter, had you had to send them a check, stuff. you had to send yeah. away, you had to have, you know, like check boxes on a thing you ripped out of a magazine. It was like, I tried to do that stuff, but like, like I tried to do it on my own and save up money, but then like, my, I, I didn't, I was an idiot and I didn't understand you need postage on things, you know? And it was stuff mm-hmm. like that where, um where I I felt like I just didn't have access to these things. This tape, the VHS tape that you literally hold in your hand, Mike, that you got... Uh, is to me one of those things. Like, I feel like if I was reading Fangoria, I would have seen this tape in the ads in the back Oh, 100%. Yeah. And that, so I guess for me, it's like, I didn't know these things existed because even though I liked horror, I'll say that I don't remember my local CVS or whatever ever selling Fangoria. I had no place to buy Fangoria. I would have when I was young if I knew about it, but I didn't have any friends who did that. I was in the, the suburb, the deepest fucking suburbs of Michigan. Like, I had no, I was into stuff only like tangentially like i got it like poltergeist was a movie that found me um and that's as popular as that movie is that was like on the fringes for in terms of where my friend group and my family existed in terms of pop culture so and Mm -hmm. poltergeist is the movie that got me into horror so it's like that that so i guess when i see this tape that's what i think about is like i would have loved to watch this but uh, mike tell me do you know did this air on network tv or was this sort of a collector's edition it looks like as if this was basically just a, a almost kind of a collector's thing i mean it was it looked like it did air you know in various forms um when it was you know like they mentioned like i mentioned earlier it was like it was part of you know uk sh- or like shows like this is horror and shadow theater gotcha but it yeah. does look like oh i guess it was like a tv special so originally it was something that was you know aired on tv i couldn't find any information on like where it actually aired um a barouche television group presentation of a simmons fortune production um i mean it, Bill Simmons? Not Bill Simmons. No, yeah, it's Grandpa <laughs> Simmons over there from. But you tap into something that I really wanted to discuss because it's something that I think people. I don't know if it's undervalued or take advantage of, or you know, we, we we don't really or take for granted of. But I think the way that we get information and how that information is decimated into fandom, obviously, has evolved so differently over the years and into something that is something that I, I still think that we're sh- trying to comprehend today, just because it's this omnipresent thing. But as you were saying, Randall, like there were gates before, you know, and there were things that you could not get to and get access to. And a lot of that was just simple information. Like I, the, the thing this tape conjures up for me is how I used to get news about movies, you know, like it's, it's wild for me to think that in this day and age, there'll never be a situation where you'll be walking through a movie theater or a blockbuster and find out about a movie. 
because yeah. mm -hmm. that's something that just doesn't happen anymore. And that's something that happened all the time as a kid. Like I'll, I'll never forget the first time I heard about Jurassic Park, a movie that we just discussed in the main feed was through a poster and yeah. and through maybe a teaser trailer. And for me, you know, trying to find out all the inform information even before, you know, sites like Dark Horizons popped up or even, you know, something like Bloody Disgusting, which we're on, it was stuff like Sinscape, you know, magazines that you'd find racks. And I would just spend hours in Walden Books or B. Dalton just absorbing these magazines to try to figure out, like, kind of connect the dots on things that I liked or things that I was learning that I liked. And I think that this this VHS taps into that sort of old school analog culture that I'm not going to say is better because I don't think that's first off, I think there are a lot of um, connotations with that that comes off as gatekeeping. But I, I think the thing I like about it was that I respected it more because it was so, it felt not only just personal to me, but I could focus on it a little bit more. Whereas I feel like nowadays everything's so inundated. And I think that's what's so interesting about this VHS tape is that you watch it and Stephen King comes off as this larger than life figure. And a lot of the folks on this do. I mean, a lot of the directors do. I feel like this is how probably a lot of horror hounds who watched it started, you know, repping them in the same ways that we would when we discover bands a long time ago. And I think there's an important aspect of that psychologically that we really can't, that, 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 that's lost today. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of these filmmakers, just think of them. I mean, I could rattle a few of them off. Like, you know, yes, David Cronenberg is talked at great lengths by fans nonstop online and through lists and through media, but he's not on social media. So let's just say that he was, you know, you're starting out, David Cronenberg is probably not a personality that you're really gonna be, you know, that you're not gonna be hip to unless you really sought out a lot of these like analog or interview type of things. <laughs> Stephen mm -hmm. King by, 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 by proxy, but just because it's, this is a Stephen King podcast and we're talking about Stephen King's world of horror, he's on Twitter, he's staying a personality. <laughs> he's connected with the media. So like, it's, it's an interesting way of how he's stayed as this person, that, 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 this doorman, as you mentioned before, Randall, because he's evolved with the culture, but some of these folks haven't. And so I don't know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's an interesting way when you chart out it almost as an anthropological level to look at, at this type of item. And I know that's putting a lot of emphasis on a fucking 45 minute documentary, <laughs> but it's an interesting capsule for me to wrestle with, to kind of look at just how we contend with pop culture, even beyond horror. Um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, but. I love what you're saying. And it touches on something that I wanted to talk about, which is that King is playing a role here. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's something I really loved about this. But I also want to work through my feelings on this because I agree with you about this. And I think it has to, to and speaks in a lot of ways to the social media aspect. Um, and I think I'll just say something very broadly that I might contradict myself on later, but is that, isn't it like these days, as much as we are a culture of branding um, these days, it doesn't often at the same time seem like people who write horror want, they don't want to be perceived as someone who is quote unquote dark, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. They want to be like, no, I'm a normal person, right? Yes. And I think that comes off the heels of, I mean, 
a million things satanic panic uh mm-hmm. or columbine trench coat mafia yep. things like that nobody wants to be associated with darkness right so i think a lot of horror authors make pains to present themselves as normal people but they're what i kind of enjoy about this special is that king is like oh no i am deeply disturbed yes you know he's like i am warped why would anyone do this you know and i i found that very charming here Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. because i think that he has moved away from that i mean obviously he has as he's gotten older because if he was you know his age and still doing that it would probably be kind of cringe but like when we talk but i will say though when we we did our interview with him did you know we interviewed stephen king it was really cool um but (laughs) no i had no clue Um, but he uh you know he joked in that he's like he's like i haven't gone soft and he says you know i love grisly things he was laughing when he was thinking about some of the nasty stuff that he put in holly which he said is a very grisly book and i loved that when he did it because i'm like i'm like yeah show me the old mean king like show me that side show me it's still there because i think that that sort of thing is very uh appealing especially in today's culture where you know you've got someone like um you know and i say this with all love mike flanagan who he doesn't talk about scaring people he talks about like love and togetherness all the time and i'm like that's cool i love the movies you make but i don't really give a fuck about hugging people like i want you to scare me and so um so but you have king in this video who's like i'm warped i am you don't do this sort of thing if you're all right which you read it's on the box mike but then he joked he's like i did kill a few people but they never found the body yeah i think i'm all right right and he's and he's grinning during all of it right and he's he's playing this and then i remember when they were talking about stand by me jen you mentioned that that's like a new movie that's coming out uh, when this video is made, and they also talk about the Running Man in that similar way, where yeah, it's like which this is so funny, new adaptation, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's so funny, and uh, and I feel like they showed like ninety minutes of clips from that. Yes, movie. they did. Oh my right. god, it goes on forever. I'm like, it what, goes what is... on for so long. Yeah, but uh, but when they talk about the body, they're like, how much is fiction and how much is truth? Is something <laughs> King will take to his grave? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh man, they're building this whole mystique around him, and he's playing into it, which is not a bad thing. Like, and then. Yeah. Uh, he showed that scar on his arm and he said it was from a leech and then he goes oh and I have another one but that's in a place where I can't show you you know and he goes if you watch the movie you'll know what it's about you know, yeah Gordy Gordy gets one on his dong or whatever and so it's like <laughs> dong. but that's what I'm saying is is King is very much playing into this notion of like uh He's he's not saying that he is like disturbed because he's very much because then he also balances that by saying I'm just a normal guy. And he talked about John Wayne Gacy, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like in this Mm -hmm. thing where he's like, John Wayne Gacy, because he's talking about the nature of evil. And he's like, John Wayne Gacy was possessed with an evil, but that evil existed in those moments when he killed people. And then when you see him in jail, he, he's this like, I think I wrote down the actual phrase. He yeah. Uses. He, he, he goes, he it looks like a retired baker. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And the funny thing is I was, um, thanks to a constant listener, Dave Musson. He sent me, I, I wanted to reread his essay on becoming a brand name as well as his essay. Um, what is it called? Like the market, uh, hold on. I have it up here. Um, 
it's like Stephen King, The Horror Market Writer and the Ten Bears, which is an essay he wrote in 1973, which is a, a very early essay for him. And then On Becoming a Brand Name is an essay he wrote uh, shortly after the release of uh, The Shining. And that's about, you know, basically becoming a popular writer. And uh, and I think that's, and I kind of wish that I, these essays are collected in Secret Windows, which is sort of a companion book to On Writing. And uh, it's a book, it, I've read these essays, but it was, it's been so long. I kind of wish we had them when we did On Writing because I think it would have illuminated a few other things. But that's the thing is King's always sort of reckoned with uh, his rise to fame because I think mm-hmm. he understands it was different than a lot of others because he didn't come from privilege. He came from, you know, nothing. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about him. But And so I think he's as mystified by his success as anyone. So he writes about it a lot. But he does... Um, he does talk about in these essays about the idea of the horror writer because I think in the 70s and 1980 when he wrote on becoming a brand name being a horror writer was not um, common and I think there was a stigma attached to it and he talks about how H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Robert Block the guy who wrote Psycho people like that he's like he's like I can show you photos of them they look like accountants they look like normal men you know and he touches on that uh, with John Wayne Gacy in this uh, special, but he also plays into the idea that, um, but I am different because I write about this. Well, and that's yeah. honestly where he's at mentally. If you if you remember from our it discussion, we talk yeah. about how we looked at it as this like purge almost. You know, like he creates this epic and he wants to move on to more cerebral horror. Or, you know, maybe not so much the EC Comics variety, but a little bit more into the the, the thrillers, which is what you know clearly defined his 90s output as we just finished on the podcast and i i I think i'm right there with you randall because watching this it did make me smile to when he was you know to kind of borrow what you were just discussing earlier like kind of leaning into the the almost like wrestling tropes in a way you know like Mm -hmm. the character that's coming out there and it is it is charming to watch because i don't know if he i mean i'm sure mentally and inside Obviously, based on just some of the writings that he's had and what we know today, there, you know, he recognized the stigma of it. And I think mentally he he always wanted to associate more with like the sort of highbrow horror that came out of the late 60s and early 70s, as we discussed in the Ghost Story um, episode when we talked about Rosemary's Baby and, um, and The Exorcist, the other. But look, this is 1986. 86, one of the most excessive fucking years of the decade <laughs> and you could see it in the type of horror that was putting put out there i mean this is the same year that jason lives comes out in which they have to make you know tongue-in-cheek Ooh, good point yeah jason you know mm-hmm. this is this is literally around the time when freddy's gonna start becoming mtv freddy a year before that so yeah. horror at that point is not only just mainstream but it is sort of it's it's blockbuster horror it's the first time arguably maybe since i don't know like i guess you could count the you know post-depression horror that came out with the universal monsters and obviously the drive-in horror of the fifties. But when you think about it, like this is probably the ceiling at that point until where we are today, where, you know, it is making $500 million or whatever. But Jim, what do you make of King in this? And do you, do you miss this type of King or do you kind of like the, you know, the King that we've, you've seen in, you know, today and, and obviously who we talked, we talked to last week. Hello. Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. 
Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Well, I, I will say, I feel like as I was watching this, I loved it. And I was trying to figure out if he was playing into this role because he felt like that's what he's supposed to do as a horror author. Or, you know, I kind of got this suspicion he just kind of likes to fuck with people. Like, it's just <laughs> it's fun with him to for him to scare people. Because I went to see him when End of Watch came out. He did a tour, and he came to the Ryman Auditorium. And so I saw him speak there. I actually cried when he came on stage, which, Aww. you know, was kind of dark. I know, I'm a dork. But, but he started telling this story, and he was like, I can't remember how he got into it, but he was like, yeah, and so now you're thinking right now, did I lock my car door? And then he started, like, he was talking a little bit, and he was like, and then you think, well, if I forgot to lock my car door, maybe I forgot to lock my my front door of my house, and is there somebody in my house right now? And are they are they going into my bedroom? Are they in my closet? And so he was just telling this story to, and it was really chilling. Like I don't do it justice because I'm not Stephen King, but like it was this same kind of thing, but it was slightly through a different lens because I feel like in the video he's like, "I'm a madman. I'm going to scare you. I may have <laughs> killed some people." Like it almost felt kind of like the Roger Corman, like the tingler oh, may I mean, come out in the middle of the thing you know because he's wearing but, garlic at one point does isn't he yeah. like around exactly. his neck? i was yeah. like is that a snake yeah he's but, wearing uh uh a spinal cord oh like, okay kind oh. of a skeleton and he's <laughs> oh, like, right. predator style. okay okay i couldn't yeah. tell i couldn't tell sorry jen i didn't mean <laughs> no it's fine but like it when he was telling this story like maybe seven years ago i can't remember exactly how long ago it was him as himself telling us a story to scare us it wasn't he wasn't like i might be in your bedroom when you get home you know i might be hiding behind you about to kill you and so i feel like that difference like this the urge to scare people is just part of who he is and it's going to always be in his bones but i do feel like he's kind of relaxed a little bit and let himself kind of be who he is like just a regular person who like has a dog that he likes to post about you know and you see a little bit of that in the video too because one of the most relatable things I found in this movie, like, or this, this special 
amidst all of the like I killed two guys but they'll never <laughs> find me <laughs> um was he said that his biggest fear is going to check on one of his kids and finding one of them dead yeah. and you know that's of course my biggest fear too and so I found that really like humanizing for him like he wasn't mm. like my biggest fear is that Cthulhu is going to rise from the grave or like the you know some kind of like really big cinematic thing. He was like, no, I'm, I'm a person. And these are the things I'm afraid of. Like he, but he said, he's afraid of squishy things, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because that was a, an area that I wanted to kind of touch upon because it really does kind of strike the dichotomy of where he's at mentally, because he also, yeah. if you recall and that, and actually let's just, let's just do the clip row right now where he, he talks about Ooh. what else he's scared of. For every King story, there is an underlying form of fear. The fear may be emotional, psychological, physical, or unreal. For example, the stories Christine and Maximum Overdrive both reflect King's preposterous fear of machines, such as cars, coming to life and killing people. Nobody believes in the vampires, really. Nobody believes in the car that runs by itself. So, okay, nobody believes in a car that runs by itself. That's a ridiculous idea. On the other hand, if we turn around, we can say we have an entire societal machine in terms of our technology that's running by itself. Uh, it's out of control, and nobody seems to know how to stop it. It's spewing out weapons, substandard cars, uh, razors that don't work after the third time that you plug it in, jetliners that drop their motors. So who is kidding who? It's like dreaming away. So, you know, in that clip, He's kind of going back to, honestly, something that we brought up in the interview, that, that, that sort of angry political side of him, in which he's mm. very cynical about the machine that we're working and living in right now, which is that, you know, ultimately, we're a nation that's sitting on more atomic bombs than we ever fucking need. And that is a sort of fear and anxiety that I think really defines a lot of his earlier work that I wouldn't say maybe defines some of his later work today. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting dichotomy and split where you have, where you do have that sort of, he is worried about the local horror, right? Like you were talking about. And I say local, not as in like, oh, hey, look at my neighbor. I meant like more of like, oh, my kid's going to run out in the road and he's going to get hit. Right. I, but but this area, I, I, I do think that the, the sort of atomic area and the way he talks about it in that clip I just don't know if that's the king today anymore. And I think this is well, something that Randall and I talk about. We, yeah. t we talk about like off the side sometimes also. It's just like, wh where did that, where did that king go where he maybe doesn't, I don't, I'm not saying he believes in the political system, but he certainly, <laughs> you know, stands for it a little bit more than maybe he would probably in 1986 when he's making that quote. Well, I'll say this too. This was 1986. Yeah. He was writing the Tommyknockers yeah. at this time. And that was, you know, a book that, I have talked about it in our episode. It has a lot of nuclear fears in it. These things were very heavy in his head at that time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and we, I'm, you played the clip, but he's talking about like technology running by itself, out of control. Nobody knows how to stop it. Uh, he's talking about substandard cars and weapons yes. and jet planes dropping their motors in midair. And then he mentions razors that don't work after the I know, I love that. plug it in. And I'm like, I'm like, you had a bad experience with Norelco or something. Uh -huh. He's taking it out. But, but I think that that that's a really good point. And we also, I think, an uh, interesting thing to to think about is that he was about to get sober. I, I mean, know, this was I know. Uh, this was 
filmed, I think, when he was near the height of his addiction. He looks fine uh, in the video, but I think that this was around the time that he, I mean, it was probably within a year or two that he got sober. So it's really interesting to see this edgier side of him that I think comes Mm -hmm. out, which I think is in some ways exacerbated by the drugs and um, the alcohol that he was consuming. And But I will say at the same time, there's always going to be a part of me that misses Cocaine King, you know? Uh, Obviously, I would never wish that on him again. But um, but you know I love I love sort of the paranoia that's here. But I think but I think what we're getting at is that even though he plays the role in this, as you pointed out, Jen King was always well rounded. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. he he touches on all the different aspects of horror. It's just that I think he understood that the money was in the character, right? Mm-hmm. It was in mm-hmm. the Stephen King brand. And that's, I think, what he leans into a little more. He always had that human side of him. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about the way he talks about um, uh, uh, the woman in the room mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. and mm-hmm. his mother because I found that extremely affecting and something mm-hmm. that I feel like he would never say today. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's... Uh, but do you want to get to that just... clip or do you want me to just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play that clip. Yeah. My mother did die of cancer, and she died very painfully, and it was a very long, drawn-out death, the sort of death that only modern medicine can provide, uh, you know, with enough uh, enough cures and enough keep them on their feet to, you know, be the equivalent of the rack and the boot. It's the, the modern-day Inquisition is uh, an attended death uh, after, a, you know, all the obituaries is, is a long illness, but that doesn't say anything about, you know, the limbo of suffering that goes on during that illness under certain circumstances. But that's what I, what I say when I mean you, it's not fair to trust anything that a writer says about himself because that story ends with this guy pouring pills down his mother's throat to kill her, which is something that I never did. I wish in retrospect in some ways that I had, had done that because I think it would have spared her a lot of suffering. Yeah, I mean, a pretty transparent clip. I think that's what you're getting at, too, is that, like, he was, they're really, like, not so much of a filter, I think, on him at this point, which I like no. a lot. I like that I a lot. You well, know? he's talking well, about and- his mother's death, and he says, he talks about her death as being the kind of long, drawn-out death that only modern medicine can provide. And uh, and that, to me, chilled me to the bone. Yeah. I mean, my, my grandma right now, this especially, I mean, I'm going to get mildly personal, which I don't mean to do necessarily, but it's like my grandma's in hospice right now, and she is, you know, not hasn't been doing good for a very long time and i think and you know my wife and i talk often about i know this is so dark but uh it's just kind of like notions of euthanasia you know Mm -hmm. like i joked once on twitter because i have a very dark sense of humor when they announced sort of the what was it called like the death capsule or something it was like in sweden and it was like literally like like a, a a box that people could go in and it kills you painlessly it's Kevorkian style and it was a a product that was being launched and I was very much like I love this thing I want this thing I want to be able to die when I want to die (laughs) and my wife was like no like don't commercialize euthanasia which I'm like you're also right but it's like but I think there is part of me that um 
you do question the notion of of why is this person still suffering? Like, why are we keeping them alive at this point? And he talks about this so frankly. Mm-hmm. Like, and he says, uh, he because that story is about a man who basically puts his mother out of her misery, and he talks about this level of suffering that we do to keep someone alive and how in the story they do that. And he goes, obviously, I did not do that. And he says, it's not fair to trust anything a writer says, you know, like, which I love that he said that. But then he he adds, and this is, I think, what, you know, I think the real thing. He goes, I wish in some ways I had done that Mm -hmm. because I think I would have spared her a lot of pain. And that, to me, is not something I can see pretty much anybody in today's day and age saying because no. they would get it would get picked up it would get thrown around twitter it would become really violent and uh it's it's but the thing is that's such a deeply human sentiment i think anybody who's ever watched someone they love die slowly uh would understand that sentiment and again it doesn't mean that it's an easy uh, moral question um it's not but the idea that he would say that and in a special that is meant to be consumed by a mass audience to me speaks to just the the absolute frankness and audacity of him and in a very good way you know i, yeah. I respond to that and uh yeah so it's, it's it's interesting to see how much depth he's presenting in what is essentially you know, he didn't have to, it's not, it's not exactly the stage that it needed that, you know, right. like he could have literally just continued to keep leaning into, I'm just going to keep using the wrestler comp because that's the best, the smartest way to do this. <laughs> sure. Is that he could have kept doing that. Right. But he didn't. And I think that's, I keep, I think that says everything about him as a personality in pop culture, regardless. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know, we talk a lot about like, oh, how did he become this larger than life icon? How does he, you know, how is his only equivalent Spielberg, you know? And it's because I think a lot of that sort of transparency speaks volumes. And yet he also has his foot in the door of being a showman. I mean, this mm-hmm. is coming, you mentioned, you know, going for the money and then knowing that this was the money, you know, this is where the money was at. This is coming a year after his American Express commercial, which yeah. you think about it, Nowadays, it's like, oh, commercials, who cares? You know, uh, if I see a Sky Rizzi ad, it's, you know, who gives a shit? It's in, you know, CTV, whatever. Back then, if you're in a fucking national campaign in huge commercial, that's a huge deal. And you become a household name. And I think that was largely why he became a huge household name for, you know, us <laughs> as kids. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. you know, our older brothers, our older siblings, and what, you know, what have you. And so it's interesting that he does that. And yet, you know, let's say that you're pulled in by that and then you're hearing him get to this type of depth on a 45 minute special. I think it says a lot about his character and I think it says a lot about why we're still talking about him today. That's just my take on it, but. um, Yeah, and I think like it is important to note that I think that this was close to him getting sober, but not sober yet because I feel like that like level of honesty is something you see a lot when people are constantly high or constantly drunk you know like you are able to tap into these really deep wells of emotion that you oftentimes like like when you're sober you will your filter will cover it and you won't really let yourself go there and Stephen King just has this amazing way with words that like when I get to that point I'm like slurring like an idiot (laughs) but he comes out with this like really profound statement about his mother's death you know 
And I think this character that's kind of that we're talking about, I think relates to his substance abuse too, because if he's at a point where he's this close to getting sober, he's probably at a point where he's feeling a lot of shame and kind of, I I don't want to project, but just knowing like once you start to get close to getting sober, a lot of times it's because your loved ones are constantly like Mm -hmm. asking you to, you know, so I wonder. And based on what he's written, I think that that's true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, That Tabby, she's, he's talked about like her turning her, the wastebasket over and Mm -hmm. just it's filled with bloody tissues, you know? So I feel like that is permeating like how he's speaking about himself. And that's where a lot of this, oh, I'm, might be evil kind of thing comes from you know it's like a way to kind of joke about um like this shame that you feel when you have an addiction that you're not quite able to conquer yet and like I think about Jack dumping the pressure off the boiler you know those little jokes are like his way of kind of releasing that and I think part of the reason we don't see that so much anymore is because He's so good and he's yeah. dealt with a lot of that shame, you know? Yeah, and I, I, I mean, that's the tell of Gallo's humor, right? You know, I mean, that's that's yeah. kind of mm-hmm. like, there is that lever there that, you know, sometimes you go a little too far and you're like, whoa, where are those coming from? Where, where is that joke coming from, you know? <laughs> I wouldn't um, know what you're talking about at all. I don't make those jokes. Oh, yeah, no, we never have Gallo's humor or whatever. I never talk oh, no, about no, how, never. you know, it would be easier to not wake up. But um, right. anyway, <laughs> I'm I... Gonna I prolong, I'm going to prolong the wrestling thing just a little bit yeah, longer please because... Do. He reminds me a little bit of Ric Flair because, oh yeah, um, yeah. As I think, like Ric Flair was somebody who has such a built-in iconic character that he played. He never changed gimmicks. He was always Ric Flair. He never developed it. Like even Hogan changed gimmicks, and he never changed gimmicks. Mm-hmm. He was always Ric Flair, which was basically just, uh, you know, a full of himself, uh, uh kind of survivor, uh, who would always stab you in the back. That's not what King was, but King was sort of the 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 horror meister. You know, he was, mm-hmm. um. The guy who could who could uh, spook you to the bone, even when he, you know, Flair had face turns. He he had moments of heroism throughout his career, but everybody remembers him as the villain. Everybody's going to remember King as the horror writer. It doesn't ma- matter everything else he said. But the funny thing about Ric Flair showing up in modern day WWE, which is, um, you know, I don't I, I watch very sparingly now, but I was into it, you know, about like three or four years ago, pretty intensely. And he he still pops up all the time because his daughter's a, a really successful wrestler. And um and he Yeah, she's great. She's mm-hmm. so talented. And um and he'll pop up as her manager occasionally. And the funny thing is everybody cheers for him and goes nuts for him whenever he comes out now, even when he plays the bad guy. But the thing is he he's not really a good or bad guy anymore at all. He's he's whatever they sort of need him to be because he's just kind of happy to be there, right? Because he's yeah, like 70 like years old. Yeah, like an elder statesman. Of yeah, and like if they need him, like if they need, uh, I remember there was a storyline where some bad guys beat him up and they beat up Ric Flair and everybody was like, you can't beat up Ric Flair. And they were like, <laughs> oh my God. And that made those guys more evil. But then the next day, Day, they would have Ric Flair like cheat on behalf of of his daughter, and he'd be the bad guy suddenly. And then people would uh, boo him in that moment, but then cheer him the next time he came out because he has surpassed any level of of any ability to maintain a character. He is now mm. Ric Flair icon, yeah. And that is how yeah. Stephen King is that I I find interesting, and that's why I love talking to him about you know when. Uh, 
I think that was something we needled him on a little bit in our interview is like, how do you manage Stephen King, the person versus the brand? And Mm -hmm. what is your relationship to your characters now that they have been sort of uh, pushed through the meat grinder and they are no longer really your characters? And and I think he has, at this point in his career, realized that he has transcended all of it. And uh, he can just be the writer. And, um, and so when he talks about, you know, writing these, uh, this new book that's Grizzly, and he's like, I've not gone soft, I swear. That's sort of him, I think, acknowledging the idea that people don't even see him as, like, they remember him as the horror writer, but he's also just Stephen King now, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like, Mike, you had mentioned to me off mic about, like, when was the last time one of his books was a huge deal, right? Yeah. That doesn't mean that they don't sell great and that they aren't good, but... They don't make waves in the same way they used to. No. And I think that that speaks to the idea that he is not um, exciting. He is simply part of the firmament. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that kind of goes into what we were discussing earlier on is just the idea that, you know, it's so hard for culture to puncture culture. You know, like I, I think nowadays information is so readily accessible. Things are so digested at, at speeds that I don't know if we can even comprehend as humans yet, which is another reason why I think there's a lot of discussion that no one's really had about what the, 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 the rapidity of culture has done to the overall culture in general. But what I, what I'm getting at is that, you know, when you, when you think about that, that, you know, he releases misery, right. Which I think is probably, I think I argue was like probably like the last book that honestly, like, was like on a national level, everyone's talking about, um, you know, and, and I, and I say that not, not to dismiss anything that's come after that, because obviously they, yeah. you know, he's, he's won awards. He's, you know, he's, he's been praised by critics, but I'm talking about something that, that hits in the same way that something like stranger things is right now, where everyone is just thinking about it or talking about it. It is the thing of the hour. It, it's just such a different era, you know? And I yeah. think, and I think the fact that he was leaning into a culture that clearly at that point was ubiquitous. Like he is here in the, you know, 1986 in which horror is incredibly, um, you know, bankable. It, it makes sense that he, you know, he, he would have that sort of the, the, the sort of totem moments. And I don't know if we'll ever get that with really any fucking celebrity anymore, which is kind of one of the reasons why there's that huge, you know, great debate with Hollywood right now is like, are we ever going to go back to an era where there is the, you know, the movie star? I mean, like Top Gun Maverick came out and everyone mm-hmm. talks about how, you know, Tom Cruise is like the last, you know, movie star. And I, and I just, and I keep wondering if that's just the case on every level now, because again, it's not, it has nothing to do with the luster of, of a, an, an, an individual or a celebrity. It's just the way that we operate as a culture. I mean, yes, yeah. even stranger yeah. things. I mean, you think about it, I just mentioned it, it's like, yeah, it's ubiquitous in the sense that everyone's talking about it, but even a fucking week later, it's already died down. And that was a monumental thing that that is a thing that paused culture in a way that God, I mean, used to happen over nine or 10 months. I mean, we talked about Jurassic Park early on. That movie was in theaters for months. That doesn't happen Mm -hmm. anymore. And I think that, I think, you know, I'm rambling, but you know, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so interesting to see how Stephen King still is IP after all these years. But I don't know if he would be the sort of ubiquitous IP he is today if he didn't lean into 
the sensibilities that we're talking about here in this 45 minute special. That's yeah. I want to, I I love everything you're saying. You're not rambling because it is a hard thing to define, right? Because the um, it's, I ask myself all the time, is Tom Cruise really a last movie star or is it just like the last movie star of a, he is the last movie star of an era that is now gone. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. uh, cause we have movie stars. We have Ryan Reynolds. We have, um, you know, Gal Gadot. We have, uh, the rock. Um, these people lead movies and their presence sell movies, but it doesn't feel the same, no. you know? And I think that's because in a lot of ways their, their personalities are, are managed to such a degree that it's suffocating. And these people, Ryan Reynolds more or less exists as a brand. I can't remember the last time I saw the slightest semblance of humanity from him. If he's not, uh, in a movie, um, he's, uh, shilling his gin, you know what I mean? And that doesn't mean that like, people and that's the thing is like if you really do weigh these things it was the same thing back in the 80s like Mm -hmm. these people had brands and they did all that but there was i think about i'm thinking a lot about king literally talking about woman in the room and and uh making these jokes about killing people and nobody finding the bodies that's the kind of thing that's missing now right Mm -hmm. in the 80s you had you had playboy interviews with mickey rourke where he talked about kicking guys asses all the time and he was the biggest movie star in the world and um you had these the this sort of like um raw humanity that existed um that would sort of bleed through the hollywood cracks and and i think the question i'm now obsessed with and this speaks to what you're discussing, Mike. And I know I bring this up with Will Meneker of Chapo Trap House in our upcoming uh, interview that we're going to run. Is And this is something I want to continue to discuss sort of in this era of King that we're in, which is like, what is a literary celebrity nowadays? Uh, because King was a literary celebrity who also punctured culture and permeated culture and was in American Express commercials and directed a Hollywood movie. And uh, is that ever going to happen again? And like, I think, I know. And that's the question though. And I feel like we, we don't have the answer as to why. Uh, And I think, I think we have a vague understanding that exists at the fringes of our intellect, but it's hard to articulate. And I feel like it's what a lot of people are trying to articulate, but it has a lot to do with what you're saying, Mike, which is the rapidity of culture, the social media uh, nature of culture, the ways in which information enters our ears and filters out through our mouths and noses so quickly. And we don't uh, process things in the same way anymore. And that doesn't, that's not necessarily an indictment because I don't want to sound like my parents complaining about, uh, you know, um, God, like, uh, video games when I was a kid. It's, it's, it's just that culture has changed in such a dramatic way. Uh, and the nature of what stardom and celebrity and, um, permeation, uh, zeitgeist, Ness is is so different than it was when we were young and king is fascinating and he's like spielberg because they both occupy that same sense of being elder statesmen of a different era who have um transcended their own humanity oh, and totally. they, repre- they represent an idea and an old era so yeah. I think that, and I think that, and again, to circle back, I guess, to what we're discussing, which is this <laughs> VHS tape, <laughs> you know, is, but that's the thing. That's what's yeah. so interesting is like, is like, yeah. is like, it does all tie back to that, that um, we're coming back to this notion of who he was then versus who he is now. And back then that was sort of, he was the doorman for, 
for mainstream horror. Yeah. And um, and he's not that anymore because horror is is uh, has become so mainstream that it doesn't need him anymore. He's sort of like, you know, one of the elder gods of yeah. mainstream horror. Yeah. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, and I think he almost kind of ushered in that era, too, because, like, there's a big part of me that doesn't, like, that sometimes forgets that he is a horror, that he is under the umbrella of horror. And, I mean, he obviously is because he has written so many horrific stories. But, like, he's almost, because his writing is so empathetic and because it's so character-driven, I feel like it kind of exists adjacent to a lot of the horror that we see now but so when I watch this special it's almost like he's saying here's what horror is and it's okay to like it like we're normal people it's okay but I'm also gonna scare you and I feel like that's why so many people like find horror through Stephen King because as scary as some of it is and as fucked up as some of it is like there's also a safety and a warmth in a lot of his stories, you know, especially totally. some of his stories now. And like when you talk about Tom Cruise being a movie star, I agree that he is a movie star, but it is impossible for me to watch anything with Tom Cruise in it and know what the actual character's name is. Like he is Tom <laughs> Cruise. He's always Tom Cruise in everything he is. And like when I watch a Stephen King thing, it's like it's horror, but it's also Stephen King. And those two things like sometimes go sometimes overlap but sometimes they don't you know and it's it's funny that we're talking about Tom Cruise because like I think this shift that we're talking about a lot of it like it didn't happen because of the whole jump the couch thing but that I think that was a turning point because (laughs) I listened to this fantastic like you're wrong about episode where they were talking about he was reading the room. He didn't expect this thing to go viral like it did. You know, like right. that wasn't a thing that happened at the time that he gave this interview. And so just the proliferation of everything we see now, I think, is what takes like the humanity away from some of the people that we like, even though it feels like we're getting to know them more, it's actually less because you're they're so managed. And Tom Cruise is. Tom Cruise and Stephen King are anomalies. You know, I don't think there will ever be anybody like either one of them. You know? well, well, it's interesting, Jen, because people have been describing Top Gun Maverick as a movie that is kind of an allegory for Tom Cruise's career. Like, mm-hmm. and I feel like, are we going to say that about every Tom Cruise movie that comes out now? Like when the Maybe. next Mission Impossible comes out, we'll be like, is this movie about Tom Cruise? Because, <laughs> yeah. and I feel like in some ways when we read Billy Summers, 
we did that when we were younger. We're like, this book is about Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and okay, I, but so... Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, go no, I'm, just saying, I'm not saying... I don't think... And the thing is, that's not an invalid read because King obviously does write himself into these books. And it's an absolutely valid read. But I think once you achieve that level of ubiquity and you like, I, I would love to see Tom Cruise play like a weird character role uh, in something mm. again, but I don't think that'll ever happen. Well, we'll I think see. That, Cause I, yeah. I do think his, his next stage from 60 to 80 is going to be a very interesting turn <laughs> because, you know, he's already walking from the mission impossible movies after these two that come out. And I think they're, when you look back before the pandemic, it was aligned pretty much around his 60th birthday. And so I do think that we are going to be in an interesting era of like, well, can he sustain this? Because, you know, the reason why he's been able to be this movie, I love how this is turning into a cruise cast. But, uh, <laughs> cruise cast. There, I mean, the, but the reason why he's able to stay this is that, is that, you know, he's still making thrilling movies, which is the same. I mean, I, I, I do wonder, can you say the same about King? Because one of the things that, because I still love his books. I love, I love Billy Summers. You know, and I, and I thought later had some really interesting parts to it. And, you know, obviously we've been up and down about the true crime, but so has a lot of the constant readers. And what I've noticed in, you know, having, you know, doing socials and stuff so much is that, you know, when I'm sharing it to a lot of these places, you know, I go back and look at how the posts are doing. And I look at the comments and one of the big consensus that I see is, oh, I miss when he was just doing horror. Oh, I mm. miss when, you know, his, you know, the books are either mean or, oh, I miss when, you know, oh, he hasn't, you know, he's into this true crime stuff and everything. And, you know, I think that's honestly kind of where the, 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 you know, the Cruz and King differ is that I don't know if Cruz can go and do whatever he wants anymore because I don't know yeah. if that works. I mean, we did see that before. I mean, he goes and does a fucking weird movie like Valkyrie, which I don't know why anyone in their on paper thought, oh, why don't we watch a bunch of Nazis <laughs> as main characters? Like, no, that didn't work. I, I don't know if he can go back and try to be the crews that I love from like Magnolia and Va- Vanilla Sky or, you know, or, or even something like, um, you know, Born the Fourth of July. I think that this next 20 years are going to be interesting. Whereas King, it doesn't matter. He can go and yeah. do true crime. And he knows that it, there's, you know, it's it's going to work for him, and it has. They've been bestsellers. So I think that's where he's, even, where King is even more of an anomaly. The thing that I really wanted to pivot at to kind of round this out is what we've been kind of kicking around, which the elephant in the room is the evolution of horror. You know, this is what you discussed early on, Randall, about you know the the Fangoria issues and the conventions, and you see it in this in this VHS tape, this 45 minute special of just how fringe like horror was. And I mm-hmm. think a large reason why is because horror was in a lane and horror stayed in that lane. And you were still getting a lot of horror stories that were strictly horror that weren't trying to be, be a drama with elements of horror that weren't trying to kind of really kick around and experiment too much with a lot of the cerebral horror that we know today. And I think it's also because a lot of the ingenuity was still there. I think there's a lot of of arguments that can be made in the fact the fact that you know it's the same thing that you talk about with pop musicians is that like oh every so, you know all like songs and stories and the tropes have been made now you got to really shake them up by mixing tropes together and I think that's largely why 
horror is this sort of undefined thing now, which is why you have so much metaphorical horror, which is why you have so many, you know, comedy, you know, horror comedies, or, you know, it's never just strictly horror some, most of the time. It's always these sort of like amalgamations of things. And you can credit that to the fact that we're now at a state where, you know, so much content has been made that of course you're going to have to shake things up. You got to play jazz with a bunch of different fucking genres. But what I love about looking back at 1986 and back of this tape is that it was the monster was under the bed the monster was in the cornfields the monsters were these gross fucking things that you could wear that you could talk about that you could see being made and i don't know if that i mean that culture obviously still exists because there's still movies about monsters being made but it's different and i think a lot of it is because it was in that lane and I'm probably going to get fucking pitchforked for that, <laughs> but but I do think that's a big part of it. And it was, it was still weird. It was still fringe. And I'm not saying it's not weird and fringe today, but it's permeated culture in a way where, where, where horror is, it, it, it's, it, it's taken into this prestige element. And I, and I know, again, I'm going to get pitchforked for saying that, but I just don't think you could say the same thing about some of the stuff that's that we're seeing in this movie in in, in this forty five minute special. I don't know. Maybe I'm not that. I what think do you... it's okay. I think it's okay to be grumpy about the state of horror. Yeah. Because we're we're old, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're old people now, and so it's it's like it's not the same as it used to be, and there is something that is off, and that just speaks to I think a larger disillusionment with culture because culture is has permeated our entire lives because uh politics is culture you know it's like like um we you know you mentioned something earlier about social media profiles and i think a lot about this idea of how you follow a horror writer you like right on twitter and you're like okay like i'm following this guy because i like the books he writes about horror and then you follow him and all he tweets about is Ukraine. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, mm-hmm. that to me is, and I'm not talking about King necessarily, although that is part of it, but it's like, it's like, uh, or, you know, I follow a guy because he's a film critic and I like his opinions about film. And then I follow him and he's screaming about Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh all day. It's like, you know, there, and it's not as if people aren't allowed to, um, deviate from their their expertise or their lanes or anything but you know we didn't used to have that it used to be that mm-hmm. you know we read uh robert Criscow because he was the guy who you know wrote about music and, and that, that was, was how we knew robert Criscow was he wrote about music now it's like although i don't think robert Criscow has a you know has a twitter account if he does i'm not sure but uh but now the music writers that we like we follow them and they're tweeting about you know uh, getting a blowjob while on ecstasy somewhere and it's kind of like did i you know do i need to know that like the pro and i think that that's sort of the thing about culture is we know too much about everything there was a mysticism Mm -hmm. for sure about this era but i and i also think that you know obviously horror was political obviously horror had drama dramatic elements to it but i do think that there was a simplicity and bluntness to it and yet the execution had there, there, there was a, the, 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 it just was there, you know, it still was there. It didn't have to, you could see it, you could feel it and you could, you could, uh, it, it hit you in a way that obviously horror still does at this point, but I don't know. Like I, I just look back at some of this stuff and it just felt like there is a, there's an execution here, especially with a lot of these masterminds that are talking that I don't know if I could make the same comp with the majority of the folks today. I just can't. I, I, I mean, that's just my my yeah. take on it, you know. 
Well, it feels like with all of this, like we know so much about the authors and the creators, like they know way too much about us too. Like it feels like a lot <laughs> of stuff is like focus group to death at this Absolutely. point too. Whereas like, you know, back in the 80s, it, you, the box office numbers and then reviews from critics were really like all you had. Like I was listening to a podcast about Fatal Attraction. They were talking about people interviewing people on the street to find out why they kept going to Fatal Attraction. And now you'd have a million tweets about like my hot take about this movie and how it relates to blah 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 and as a person who does that a lot you know I'm kind of poking fun at myself but there's like a that like demystifies a lot of it and like I feel like we analyze things to death sometimes you know and oh 100% yes again let's let's you know that's kind of what our podcast is but that's (laughs) true (laughs) you know and I think that that's fine right yeah it's like there's a lot of good that can come out of that, but you it's like, mm-hmm. but isn't that just sort of the inexorable, like, uh, you know, march of, of culture and, and technology and progress. I mean, these things extend to every aspect of yes. our lives and, um, and it sucks. And this is why we feel, this is why it, it doesn't really matter what happens as I feel like over the last, uh, you know, 15 years, it's hard for me to find someone who doesn't feel like the world has gotten considerably worse in that time. Yep. I know. <laughs> I, I know, know that makes me, I know that's so dark for a conversation nope. about Stephen right, King. Though. But I think it's like, I think it's like, um, there is something in the air, there is something on the internet that I think chips away at sanity, at well-being, at mental health, at all of these things. And it has it doesn't necessarily have to do with the content we create, um, although that's part of it. I think it's more of the way that we just have to consume daily life. And these things are so hard to avoid. I mean, it's like living in a capitalist culture. I mean, we're all complicit in capitalism. Like, even though we can, I think so many of us can recognize that capitalism is the part of the reason we're miserable all the time. Mm-hmm. But we sort of like live within these structures that have become so suffocating, um, but also so hardwired to our wrists that it's kind of impossible to not engage with them. And I think what I miss, and Mike, this speaks and speaks to what both of you guys were discussing, is what I come back to in this video is Stephen King talking about how about his dead mother mm-hmm. and saying, you know what? I wish I could have put her out of her misery earlier mm-hmm. because that is a dangerous fucking thing to say mm-hmm. in a mass produced. Uh, you could call this a, a puff piece in some ways. You could call this a lark. You could yeah. call this inoffensive, uh, you know, um, uh, fodder like for the audience. Um, but I think that's what I think is so fun about the 70s and the 80s and I guess the 90s to a degree is that a lot of things that were made as larks and uh, tossed off look like masterpieces to us now, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because they at least feel dangerous. They feel messy. They feel... um, They feel like they were, I don't know, they feel like they were taking chances in ways that I think in our hyper-focused group, hyper-PRified world, uh, it's so rare to find. And yeah, yeah. so I think that, I think about King saying that stuff in this piece, which 
you know, is not his his grand opus. You know, it's not his magnum opus. It's not this thing where he was like, I'm going to change the world with what I say. I bet he barely prepared for these. No, I'm sure he didn't. You know what I mean? No, yeah. And I think that's sort of what I think gives it a little bit of that edge. And um, it is what I found really refreshing and entertaining and interesting about this this uh, this piece is that it really does just sort of demarcate. Uh, that era of culture, which a lot of people bemoaned at the time. Oh, I yeah. Mean, my parents certainly did. Uh, you know... I mean, it's uh, telling think, that yeah. they had Twisted Sister, which was, you know, yeah. as, as a music video that yeah. they highlight in here. And they were considered that sort of, that thing that you're talking about, Randall. I mean, literally, m- majority of their fucking songs are all about how parents hate them. And <laughs> nowadays, God, I'm sure most parents would be like, why can't you listen to Twisted Sister? Um but I, I mean, I, I, I think what's, you know, and we'll have the link so that you could watch this because it is on YouTube and both of the, the specials and it is a fun watch. But I, it's I, fun. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I, I do. I am glad that we revisited this and especially now in our chronological read, because I think if we had, you know, studied this, I think around the time that we were doing these novels, like if this if we had you know done an episode on the world of horror around the time that we were doing the it, you know, episodes. I don't think that we would be able to have the sort of hindsight that we need to have even 10 years of where we are. It's 13 years removed from where this is. Um, because I think, honestly, we opened up a, a lot of uh, interesting discussions while talking about this 45-minute special. <laughs> that is uh, that is interesting. But, I, but I, yeah, the, the whole pasteurization of culture is something I think is really going to be something that I'm going to chew on for the next couple of years while we're doing this podcast, because it's something that mm-hmm. has been really bugging me as of late. And it's something that I think certainly reared its head during the pandemic for me. And it's, and it's ultimately, and I'll be transparent and personal in here, why I left media, because it's not interesting. I don't think it's very interesting. And I don't really need to hear 600 fucking opinions about something that's <laughs> going to become an algorithm that's going to inform the next thing that Netflix or Amazon or anything else is going to put out there. I'm getting off my soapbox. But That's what it. is the what is the what is the, like the discourse going to look like? What is the Losers Club podcast in 30 years going to say about this era? And when I say that, I mean mm. not us. I mean like our children. Like, I know. Like I I, I want to know what uh, Jen's kids are going to say about culture in 30 years. You know, when they're looking back on this stuff that they grew up with, and are they going to bemoan? Uh, you know, the stuff that's coming out then and, and long for, uh, I don't know, the era of, of Mike Flanagan's uh, Midnight Club <laughs> on Netflix, you know, and that's yeah. and I'm certainly not trying to act like that's not valid. I think that people bemoaned the art that we grew up on as being, uh, you know, obviously, because we grew up on blockbusters, we grew up on Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the people these people grew, you know, they, they went through the 70s and were watching these incredible films and then seeing them disappear from theaters as uh you know as uh you know the jawsification happened uh to yeah. I, I mean think, pauline I think kale cinema. certainly did i mean she saw yeah. the leaves right then yeah and so sure. i yeah. it's so i i guess i just try to always maintain that that understanding that as as much as i get grumpy about sort of modern horror modern culture and in various ways i try to always just understand too that like maybe i just don't get it man you know and it's like (laughs) and i at the same time like i think i'm smart and i think you're Mm -hmm. smart mike and i think you're smart jen and i think everything we're saying is valid but it's like are these same debates going to be played out in 30 years with everybody longing for iCarly 
like the the purity yeah. of iCarly, you know? And it's like uh or you know, I I look at the stuff my my nephew and nieces watch and and you know, I don't know, I find I find it interesting the ways in which um cult, like uh, generations process the culture they grew up on and measure it against that which um you know, kind of uh, permeates their adulthoods. And for me, it's like, obvious. Uh, yeah, I see bad things. <laughs> I yeah. see things that speak ill of culture. But, you know, I was reading in these essays that uh, Dave Musson sent me uh, from The Secret Windows. King talks about um, the notion of of how when Carrie was released uh, in his uh, Becoming a Brand Icon, uh, when Carrie was released, book sales, you know, sword yeah and he said that's kind of a not so good look for culture is that the only way people would read now is if they see the movie and they like the movie and they're like okay i'll read the book and that's why there were so many you know uh novelizations made in that era of of movies because that was why people read was because they would see a movie and they would mm-hmm. go get the book that's that was me with jurassic park you know and um yeah. and so i think uh I think, you know, King was bemoaning that aspect of culture back then. And I think there's always going to be these areas of culture that we long for and that we bemoan. And um, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think that that's interesting. That doesn't change the fact that, you know, I bitch all the time about the state of I know. But I I also try to just remember that maybe, you know, it's the the principal Skinner meme, right? It's like, maybe I'm the one who's out of touch. Well, yeah, or or even on the the Simpsons note. Yeah, or like even at the end of, uh, you know, the Holopalooza episode, the the definition of cool, and no one can define it, even the kids at that point, you know? I think, you know, but, uh, well, look, uh, this was fun. I, I, you know, any other final (laughs) thoughts on on the world of horror? I Jen? still just cannot believe that Attack of the 50 Foot Woman was a real thing. Yeah. Well, I was watching that and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. You learn I a think lot. It developed a lot of fetishes. Have- yeah. 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 Uh, I never knew so. about uh, surf, uh, surf Nazis Must Die. I always thought it was just a slogan that you'd see in the back of like, uh, you know, I don't know, Return of the Living Dead or something like that. But uh, have you ever seen Surf Ninjas with Rob Schneider? I have. And, you know, isn't that the one where like the kid controls like reality with his fucking video game or something like that? It's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> wow. Well, look, I always love going to the archives. It's been a while since we've actually yeah. been down here. Yeah, it was um, fun to revisit. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what we're going to do next, but, uh, you know, I, I know that the next time we're down here. I'll certainly bring a sweater. So uh, <laughs> always a, bring a sweater. You know, I think that's a very cheesy and cinematic way to close <laughs> I love this out. It. Uh, well, let's let's do it. Uh, long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.